0: Hi, I'm Hanif Baharuddin, and you're listening to Night School, the show that explores ideas and themes in the social sciences and the humanities. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest of the week, Sho Yingxin. Uh, she's a postdoctoral fellow at the Malaysia Institute, Australian National University. And we're going to be talking about Mahua Literature today. Yeah. Hey, hey Ying Hello. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Thanks for coming on the way. show. Mm.
1: So I think uh, last year at the Georgetown Festival, uh, Mahua Literature received quite a bit of a spotlight. Mm. There were a few uh, writers that were invited over to really discuss, you know, this, I guess, you would call it either a category of sort of like literature that apparently is very vibrant mm. uh, in Malaysia, uh, and it's a transnational sort of like you know a category of literature mm. as well. But to an audience who is not familiar with, say, the Chinese language. Mm. I guess uh, it's also something that is quite foreign Mm -hmm. and people don't really sort of like know very much about it. Mm -hmm. Maybe uh, as a sort of like general introduction, could you sort of like, you know, walk us through what is the current sort of like, you know, debates around Mahua literature? How would you categorise this genre, or this sort of like field of Mm. literary writings?
2: Yeah, it's um, so like as general introduction, the Chinese-Malaysian literature or Mahua literature has been in... This region for many many years since mm-hmm. the Chinese arrived. Actually, they they wrote uh, literature, poems, and um, a lot of other things where they published in newspapers mostly. So, but the so called new literature, xue, was actually. Kind of an offshoots from the May Fourth literature in, in China, so it was 1919. So usually the literary historians will classify mahua literature as a new literature, of uh, vernacular literature. So since something 19- that 19- happened
1: after 1919. Okay. 1919.
2: okay. So since 1919, there there have been a few different categories. And different stages, uh, especially during the um, the war period mm-hmm. or before war, there were um, different targets and different style of writings and after the war also there are different ideological camps, especially during the Cold War so mm-hmm. there were you know, debates on um, realist, social realist writings and also the modernist writings. And,
1: and what was the modernist writing? Is it a more experimental sort of like style of writing? Yeah. Or, uh,
2: so actually I would think that um, during that time, especially slightly before and after the war, the social realist um, writings has been kind of mainstream in uh, Mahua literature and because they were really heavily influenced by um, Chinese literature in okay. mainland China. So that was the mainstream. So kind of Xin was really their kind of um, uh, exam- an iconic, yeah, iconic yeah. figure. Okay. So they really, everyone was...
1: And um, for social realist writer, yeah. in, just to clarify like, the term, mm-hmm. uh, it would be writers who are interested mm-hmm. in exploring social issues, uh, I imagine, or trying to depict reality.
2: Yeah, uh, so the it's of also so 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 uh, hard to divide because some some uh, scholars would say that actually they are not doing real social realism like what maybe Josh Lukash was talking about, but they were like socialist literature. Okay. So so it depends on on the works that they wrote. So but usually they were more I think it's a little bit uh, similar to uh, the asas lima debate whether it is seni untuk seni atau seni untuk masyarakat. Okay,
1: so, seni untuk seni versus seni untuk masyarakat. masyarakat. Okay.
2: So it's quite similar especially during the same period in the 50s where um the writers would uh, they were writers who would say that we should write about society and we should
1: uh, Use writing to uplift the morale of the society. Yes, yes. Okay. that
2: would be kind of uh, S- broadly categorized as the social realist camp. Okay. And, and since the 50s, and there were kind of modernist writers, especially coming from Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. yeah, And they um, they worked in Singapore in in the newspapers. So, so they kind of brought in the kind of modernist writing, uh, modernist literary ideas. And Which is what, like,
1: uh, what was it?
2: Experimental, and they they say, pure literature. Okay. So pure. We are talking about literature, and they don't like those uh, domatic sentences. Okay. So we want to like about literature, about our lives, our about aesthetics.
1: Um, okay, yeah. I see.
2: So. 1955 was the people would always categorize um 1955 as the arrival of modernism in 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 mahua literary scenes because of the um the founding of one uh, magazine called chaofeng chaofeng oh, okay yeah.
1: right right yeah. so why do you think mahua literature is you know really undergoing this kind of uh, 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 it's re- it's receiving attention that it's, uh that it's getting today like, uh, what's uh, why why people sort of now started to look at you know this uh, feel as if you know it. They've discovered something new when the fact that it's always existed and it's uh, always been sort of like vibrant.
2: Yeah, in recent years, it's quite obviously because of the in US academia when they brought in the idea of Sinophone studies, like a newly minted term, Sinophone studies. And these scholars, they were originally in the US um, universities and from Asian American studies and or Chinese literature, and so they want to. Complicate the boundaries of Chinese uh, studies. Okay. So, um, so instead
1: of calling it a Chinese language literature, mm. they use the word sinophone study to yes. to speak of what the language being not bound to one country. Is it? Yes. Okay. Not only
2: yeah yeah not only language but also kind of identity because okay. when they talk about Chinese, it's always people always refer it to China, mainland China. China. Okay, China. Right. And so it is also a position to resist the the kind of china centrism mm-hmm. and so um when these these scholars they are literary scholars so they would find that. Oh so Maha literature is the best example of how they can show that uh Chinese writings can flourish outside mainland China and they have been there for many years and they don't project their national imaginaries towards China but the local identity that they are focused on. But they write in that phonetic script that is the Chinese language okay. so well and yeah.
1: Must they always address the Maha literature must you always address issues that are related to Malaysia?
2: Um, Not necessarily. There are writers who write about other things, especially uh, when you say um, there are many Mahua writers now based in Taiwan. They will write about Taiwan, but actually the mainstream, um, the contents that they they have been focusing on are still uh, about Malaysia, about their Malaysian experience. Mm. So uh, for these Sinophone Studies scholars, they started with um, these Mahua writings in Taiwan. So actually they started looking at this and said these are good literature but they are published in Taiwan and these writers are now naturalized as Taiwanese citizens but they write about Malaysia, about Sarawak especially. Mm-hmm. There are a few very good writers uh, write about novels in, uh, in Sarawak so it's like they, they look at Malaysian literature through Taiwan.
1: Okay.
2: Yeah. So yeah. these are a few. Uh, for example, the writers yeah. like Un Kim Chiu, Guixing, uh, Li Ping, These are the names that have been
1: uh, associated with the Taiwanese, It has a Taiwanese connection. Taiwanese
2: connection, and these are the names that the U.S. Um, scholars have
1: uh, been paying attention to. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, okay. yeah paid attention to. Right.
0: What are the characteristics of Mahua literature? What are the themes that you know they usually tackle?
2: Yeah, there are varying issues that they have been uh, working on. Uh, but I think since we could say roughly since the 70s, the, the Chinese identity and Chinese position in, in Malaysia has been very at the forefront. And for example, Ng Kim Chiu, uh, one uh, important Mahua writer who, whose work have been translated into English, slowboat to China. So he wrote about the communist history, for example. I think for him, um, the Malayan communist history is also part of the Malayan Chinese history. So he he dealt with a lot of, he he has published kind of trilogy on his communist um, story. So I think these writers, they have been reflecting upon the Chinese um, identity in um, Malaysia or Singapore or Sarawak and their connection with the local people and also for example, the Aboriginal peoples and in the terms of issues about education, language, all sorts of things.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, uh, talking about this Mahua literature, it's almost as if um, you keep reinforcing also that there is a sort of strong Taiwanese connection, right? Mm -hmm. And that would really locate a lot of the I guess the focus mm. towards like a post-war kind of like development mm. of mm. literature that yes. is at the core of what we consider as Mahua. Mm. But you also sort of like suggested earlier that the Chinese community here has been writing since mm. at least the late 19th century with the emergence of Chinese newspaper, mm. that there is the sort of like pre-war moment, mm. say between 1919 to the Japanese occupation of Malaya. Mm. Uh, that would have been as also a very interesting and vibrant sort of life mm. space. Is that mm. looked at at all by scholars who study Maha literature, or
2: yeah, I think, or
1: is that receiving less attention? Yes, Why I is th- that? So
2: I think they are receiving less less attention. I think it's a kind of a common. Practice in the studies of um, literature mm-hmm. in contemporary world because we tend to study uh, the more recent, the more recent uh, literature, okay. contemporary or at least modern, okay. modern literature, and we pay less attention to uh, literature before that modern period. And
1: we, we so why would that period not be classified as modern? Uh, yeah, that's I, wa- I want to, of, mm-hmm. I want to sort of just share this with you. I think mm-hmm. I, I was reading this uh, magazine. I think mm-hmm. it was a school magazine, Pei Chai. Mm-hmm. It's a girls' school, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the most beautiful sort of like passage that I've read is actually about this uh, schoolgirl who started to sort of like reflect mm. uh, on her life, but then telescopes that reflection into mm. thinking about the galaxy and mm. the universe, mm. and that kind of like ability to sort of like think so expensively mm. about her place in not just the world but also in relation to. The universe, I uh, think, has, has a very sort of like beautiful, sort of poetic ring that is not entirely mm. social. Re- it's not social realist, mm. but it's not actually also entirely modernist, right? Yes. Uh, there is mm. there is very existential sort of like yes. question that plays out mm. that captures, you know, that particular interesting juncture mm. where changes in the language is happening and all that kind of like stuff. And yeah. I thought that is actually something.
2: Mm. Yeah, I could think be that, at that really makes sense so when i say people usually categorize the kind of arrival of modernism in mahalisheds in 50s so some scholars really kind of debunk um, this this claim saying that we uh, this kind of modernism was actually in the 50s was actually kind of brought over from hong kong or, or okay. other places in Um, actually with some US influence as well because the magazine was kind of... Ah,
1: Sponsored. Sponsored
2: by Asia Foundation. Ah. So um, I think this is still underexplored category, uh, underexplored issue that we should really look into it uh, more in the future because as uh, what you said, um, there were... Uh, traces of modernist writings mm. in that period I, I suppose they, they are because I, I read some uh, newspapers in the 20s uh, especially their literary supplements they were really interesting elements saying like uh, what you have uh, described uh, like the existence. I suppose
1: during a period of transition where yes. uh, there's a mm. change in the mm. nature of the, how we communicate in the Chinese language yes. that's also a period where people are Mm. more willing to play with the language, right?
2: Yes, especially when these writers, they kind of migrated from China to another world. Mm-hmm. So they, they are explored to different experience and different people, different languages. So actually, they try to experiment, uh, experiment uh, new kind of writing also, I think. But at the same time, that ancestral roots, like they're, because they're writing in Chinese and mm-hmm. they they still see themselves as, that um, descendants of that
1: um, tradition. Yeah,
2: yeah, tradition. So uh, how do they really uh, negotiate? That? I think it's a very underexplored um, um, issue, I think,
0: mm. before war. Mm. 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 All right, so let's take a break. Uh, you're listening to Night School with me, Hanif Baharudin and Simon Soon. And this week, we're joined by Sho Ying Sin. Uh, she's a postdoctoral fellow at the Malaysia Institute, Australian National University. And we've been talking about uh, Mahua Literature. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're tuned in to Night School with me, Hanif Baharudin. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest of the week, Sho Ying Sin. She's a postdoctoral fellow at the Malaysia Institute, Australian National University. And we've been talking about Mahua Literature. Uh, I want to clarify this. Uh, So, Mahua Literature is, uh, I guess, has a very strong connection with Taiwan, right? Mm -hmm. So, does that mean that all the literature, they're published there and their readership is... Based like elsewhere, is that how it works? Or
2: no, actually, um, there are um, local publishing industry in Chinese, so um, there are also a lot of um, local mahua writers writing in Chinese and publishing in Malaysia, and so um, the readers are in Malaysia as well. But those um, writers who are based in Taiwan, they are getting more attention because of um, in the Chinese readership um, um, sphere. Actually, if you want an award in Taiwan, a literary award. It's a big recognition of your work and if you got your book published in Taiwan, it's really a a, it means that you have achieved a certain kind of milestone of your creative writings. Uh, career. So those writers they are getting uh, more attention, but actually, there are a lot of um, local writers as well in, in Malaysia who get less attention. So, with the recent interest in the Sinophone studies, there are also scholars who complain that scholars have been paying too much attention to the Taiwan based Mahua writers, mm. but yeah, kind mm. of
1: overseas
2: overseeing local
1: writers. Mm -hmm. What are the platforms that would support, say, a local publishing industry in the Chinese language, Mm -hmm. say from the 50s to the 60s onwards? Uh, is it primarily independent sort of like publishing houses or are there also, you know, newspaper kind of like uh, section, literary sort of like pullouts that would actually, you know, help promote you know, yes. the, uh, literary sort of like interest?
2: Mm-hmm. So the literary supplements in newspapers have been a very important um, platform for Maha Literary Writings to be published since the founding of um, newspaper, Chinese newspaper in Nanyang in Singapore and Malaysia. So... The polemics, the debates, and the writings have all published in um, newspapers, literary supplements. And and also there are magazines, books. Uh, so when, when it comes to, let's say, indie publishing, so I always had have this idea that uh, Mahua literature or the Chinese publishing industry in Malaysia has always been indie. Uh-huh. Because there are no government support, actually. Uh, so all publishers are independent publishers.
1: Mm. And uh, they make enough sales to keep publishing?
2: Well, it depends. So they uh, so they must not be pure literary publishing house. Okay. There is one actually quite uh, important one founded by some writers themselves. So they keep um, publishing on creative pieces. But other local publishers, they couldn't afford to just publish literary works. So of course they have to do
1: like other what, textbooks and all that, yeah, stationaries and yeah. stuff like everything.
2: Yeah, they like, are also fo- like, they they to press. focus on like social issues and other cultural
1: books as okay. well. Okay. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Mm. You know, um, you know, when we talk about language in Malaysia, one of the things that uh, is often the bugbear of discussion mm. is how people see mm. uh, how language is sort of like being used. Right, like, we often see it as being sort of like contained within its own world, mm. and mm. as if the language is not. Uh, people who speak one, one language is not actually communicating across the language to yes. other people. Mm. So how do you, in, in your sort of like study of Maha literature, what are some of the examples in which uh, you see authors or in the case of stories actually showing that there are sort of like intercultural sort of exchanges going on? Mm. And what, what kind of examples are you able to sort of like, you know?
2: Mm, I yeah, think um, intercultural connections one. have been there since maybe the late um, 19th centuries. Because when the Chinese came here, they have to also know the local language, so they came up with dictionaries. So those dictionaries are quite interesting. I can't remember the exact um, oh, date.
1: 叫同, is it? Yeah, it? Hua Yi Tong, yu or tong something. Yu, uh. Yeah,
2: so they they use Chinese uh, character to pronounce Malay.
1: But actually yeah. you read it in Hokkien Yes, they read it like. in Hokkien
2: yeah. Or other oh, uh, dialects Or
1: Teochew or, or something yes. right. Can you so,
0: give some examples of that?
1: Uh, so like, you know, if you read it in say the Mandarin language mm. If you read it in Mandarin, it mm. will not make sense mm. Like it wouldn't sound right But actually if you read it in Hokkien Then it has the approximation of the Malay
2: Yeah. Mm. Uh, what looks like ayer. Yeah, or that But kereta, the character are uh, the same, Han or yeah. Chinese characters but you have to read it not in Mandarin but in Okian oh. or in Cantonese so that you can get um, yeah, or Malay- anjing
1: uh, yeah. yeah, you get anjing if you want anjing then mm. you, you know mm. they will choose the word character mm. to pronounce for you to pronounce anjing oh but it's mm. But you the words have to read are it in Hokkien or Cantonese. But the words are Malay words. The words are the words are Malay. The meaning behind it is Malay, mm-hmm. but the the character, the character is, is a Chinese, Chinese,
2: Chinese. so yeah. they made dictionaries in that way to help the the diasporic Chinese community to know Malay. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So that is also one part. They also translated some um, Chinese uh, classical stories. I think they they got a lot of help from the Indonesian. Uh, Chinese um, uh, counterparts because the Chinese in Indonesia they have already translated a, a lot yeah. of uh, works also so, so um, the Chinese in Singapore and, and uh, Malaya, they also. Uh, kind of read those um, translations as well. Okay. So in terms of intercultural exchanges, I think uh, one important period is during the nation building mm-hmm. period. So when they know that we need a national language uh, we need a lingua funka uh, when we are going to build a new nation so many Chinese writers um, in Malaysia that in Malaya during that time they agreed that we have to use Malay mm-hmm. they know that Malay is the national language and they have actually organized a lot of classes and And they want to learn Malay. They want to write Malay. They want to um, translate Malay into Chinese and Chinese into Malay. Mm -hmm. So that was the period, especially during the 40s to 60s, that they they say that they are doing a lot of kind of intercultural things when they publish magazines Mm -hmm. and bilingual magazines, and they're doing a lot of dictionaries as well.
1: Okay.
2: Yeah. So, but that kind of generation has. We have kind of lost. Already. Why? Why yeah.
1: is that? Why is that? Huh? It's not. Is that not sustained? Because I think mm. that generation mm. is not. Uh, it doesn't only come from one cultural community, yeah. right? Yeah. You see, uh, Dewan Basad dan Pustaka mm. actively translating mm. a lot of like uh, literature, not just Chinese, but mm. actually global literature from all over yeah. the world into yeah. the Malay language, yes. and mm. of course, likewise the Chinese community is doing mm. the same. Mm. Uh, there is really a, a strong sort of like desire mm. to actually try to find a way to bridge. Mm. Mm the language sort of like divide through mm. translation uh, yes. and there's a lot of investment in translation mm. as a sort of like political project in mm. some sense. of the, uh, mm. uh, Why has that sort of like lost its momentum? Today, we just assume that everyone e- either speaks one of the sort of like four th- main yeah. languages in Malaysia yeah, and, 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 and then don't really if you don't, cross, then yeah. well, too bad. <laughs>
2: well, I think the simple explanation to it, people would, Really blame it to May thirteen. Okay. <laughs> after May thirteen, everything's changed, and mm-hmm. so we, you know, with the national culture policy and a lot of things. But I think one issues that we also have to pay attention to is the loss of uh, kind of third world internationalism.
1: Okay. In, right. In in our part of the world. Can you explain a bit what the third world internationalism <laughs> is? I don't think <laughs> Malaysians, uh, a lot of us um, today, are familiar with that.
2: Well. I don't think I can provide really a clear explanation, but I think from the writings that I read from the Chinese literature or the uh, literary debates mm-hmm. in the 50s, especially 50s and 60s, they had this idea of a third-world alliance. Okay. And take an example of the students from Nanyang University, Nanta in Singapore mm-hmm. is a Chinese university. And the students, they they were very... They went to Bandung Conference. Okay. Uh, the Ban- so in, that's in
1: 1955, sort of like I, Afro-Asian I, conference. Yeah, yeah,
2: but I think they went to the Afro-Asian uh, student conference. Okay. Yeah. So what came up? was that they want to build alliances with the students from the Asian and African countries and okay. that kind of third world alliance as okay. against um. um so in today's
1: context, we normally consider third world as countries that are not underdeveloped, under, underdeveloped right? Yeah, but yeah. back then, third world was actually a kind of like political spirit yes. that was trying to sort of like bring together countries that have mm. just recently mm. uh, gained their independence from say uh, Western colonial yes. powers. Am I right?
2: Yeah, yeah. And in, in that sense so they see i think this community they they would, this student young students they will see that chinese and malay language they were language that were uh, kind of oppressed by imperialist language especially English. English. Right. So the students during uh, in Nanta actually, they, they say, we don't want to learn English. We want to learn Malay.
1: Mm. And of course... In fact, I, there was a very vibrant Malay society in Nanta, Malay language Malay, Malay language. L- yes, yeah.
2: Malay learning uh, uh, Center, environment so. as well. Okay. So they, they refused to learn the colonial language. Okay. But I think I... Like Kopao Kun would say that... Uh, Kuo Pao Kun, the Singapore dramatist, I think he mentioned that in 70s or 80s when he was in jail... These students actually, they regretted of not learning good English <laughs> enough <laughs> because that time they were so, they were revolutionary and, and they want to learn Malay mm. as a kind of alliance. Wow! Yeah.
1: So Lee Kuan Yew sort of like win <laughs> on the ideological level. I think so. <laughs>
2: so I think that's also one reason why we don't see Chinese and Malay or other kind of small languages as, uh, we don't put them on the same platform to think about
1: uh, how do you build alliances across? build alliances right. and that we
2: have to understand each other we see them in kind of different power dynamics uh, okay. right now and we don't reflect ourselves enough of um, the influence of the English language so mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. also see we usually uh, regard English as a very common uh, lingua franca Right. so right. it's easy to communicate with People in, in English. Right, right,
1: right. So that's been taken as a given la, So without yes. actually questioning what is a sort of like historical yeah, basis. Yeah. In which and
2: it's also quite ironic that um, it is true that um, studies, theory, the Sinophone theory in US and the translation has been done in the uh, English language, then Malaysians know Mahua literature.
0: Right, right. So the irony is there <laughs> <Yes>. as well. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so.
0: Mm. Now, the themes that are covered by uh, Mahua Literature, do you think that they are still relevant today? Uh, Are they still talking about the same issues, Mm. uh, same themes, same topics?
2: I think there are uh, young writers coming up. So, well, the mainstream has always been the Chinese identity, things like that. But I think there are voices who want to really go beyond that. And people who are fed up with that, they don't want to talk only about identity. I think uh, I can maybe introduce one writer, uh, a female writer whose name is Hock Sofong and her works have been also just recently been translated into English and she was also featured in Georgetown Literary Festival. Her works, I think Sofong's works, she kind of goes beyond that burden of uh, Chinese writers writing about Chinese identity or language or education in Malaysia. So she focuses on women issues, on religion, and her protagonists are not only uh, Chinese, but also other characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and she deals with a lot of um, daily issues, not necessarily that kind of identity. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. What's
1: the name of this book? Uh,
2: Lake Like a Mirror.
1: Lake Like a Mirror. Mm. Okay. And it's yeah. published by an international press? Or yeah, what, it's or? published
2: by Granta in the UK. Granta. Okay. Yeah, so
1: also, also an independent press. Yes. So you're, not, you're saying, what you're suggesting is also that not only the big, sort of like publishing house uh, paying attention to Mahua literature such as, I don't know, Penguin or or your HarperCollins or whatever. But even sort of more independent and... Mm. Uh, with a strong sort of like you know investment in the care of literature, such as Granta, are also sort of like putting time yeah, into literature. Yeah, at I this think uh,
2: this is also quite uh, interesting as well because um, the writers I mentioned, like Ahn Kim Chiu and Chang Kui Sing, those writers, their works are translated into English but published through the academic press, like Columbia UP.
1: Okay. Yeah,
2: uh, this is because um, the the, the, the scholars want to uh, research on them, so they have to translate them. Right. But okay, okay. Sok Fong's case is quite interesting that you, it is um, published by an independent uh, publisher and the the uh, freelance translator mm-hmm. whose name is Natal, Natasha Bruch and. Yeah, she did great job in translating her works, and it's not really commissioned by anyone. But she just felt that she liked the stories, and she translated those.
1: Have there been actually other writers from other sort of cultural background that contributed to Mahal literature?
2: Ah, you mean non-Chinese? So like, yeah, non-Chinese. Mm.
1: Because you would find, for example, in a correlate instance, a lot of, say, Peranakan, sort of like mm. Chinese, right, are write using the Malay language. And mm. even today, there are mm. not just Peranakan. Mm. Basically, Chinese are writers who write in Malay or write mm. in English and other languages. Mm. Have there been a sort of like, you know, a, a, well, that they, kind of... They, diff- yeah.
2: yeah, in the, terms of the Chinese language, let's say they write in Han language, it's, mm-hmm. it's quite rare. Mm-hmm. especially there, there are some writers who were kind of migrated from Taiwan or China but they are not really kind of overseas Chinese, that migration wave but they came recently from from China or Taiwan so okay, they write in Chinese, Chinese like and the, yeah. they write about Malaysia. I think we can also consider them as part of Mahua okay. literature or in Singapore's case they can be Singapore literature mm-hmm. as well. Um, but I think the, the question of Mahua, ma hua, that, that Hua has been People have been debating that what that "hua" uh, means. So that "hua" can be Chinese language and also Chinese uh, people. So sometimes people will also include Chinese Malaysians' works writing in non-Chinese language as kind of Mahalijut, like. who, who write in Malay or who writes in English, okay. can be also considered as part of Mahua literature, see right. who, who is defining it. Okay. So, in the literary communities, they would also consider Tesh Ao's works uh, as Mahua literature sometimes okay. Okay. because he has been translated into Chinese as well.
1: Okay. And right. Tan Tuan Eng's
2: works also. Right. So, and, if
1: say a Malay author like Usman Awang has been translated into Chinese, would that you consider that as Mahua literature?
2: Well, it depends, I think, who is doing yeah, the definition yeah. and for what. But uh, for, uh, yeah. in your
1: point of view, would mm. there be a scope in, in, in the most expanded span, of course, sense of course, I think we
2: have to really talk about that translated, um, translated works as um, extension of Mahua literature as well because that is done in the sense of trying to build connection mm-hmm. in that language and working through languages. Mm. So I think that effort also has to be recognised. And I think boundary is fluid and we really have to keep expanding but not limiting ourselves.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm. cool. All right, okay, so we have to go soon. Uh, but before that, uh, I know you've recommended one, I guess, mm. book, mm-hmm. Lake Like a Mirror by Ho So Fong, right? Mm. Uh, can you recommend other muahua literature that, I guess, typifies mm. what the genre or what the, mm. the, the For anyone the who wants is, to sort of yeah. like, you know, yeah, take I guess, a dip into the...
2: Yeah, in okay. English language, um, because there are not many uh, Mahua literature been translated into English. So, for uh, I really recommend Sopfong's works and also some writers who have been published by the U.S. academia press that I mentioned just now, like Eng Kim Chu. He has a short story collection called Slow Boat to China and other stories. And also Chang Kui Sing. Chang Kui Sing who is from uh, Sarawak. Okay. He was born in Miri, if I'm not mistaken. He has written a trilogy on Borneo rainforest and a lot of s- stories. What's the, title? Um, the The one that has been translated, it's called My South Sea Sleeping Beauty. It's okay. the third of his trilogy, Which is quite um, a pity Because I think the first two are the best okay. <laughs> But yeah. because it's difficult, very difficult to translate his works His choice of language His okay. Chinese character is very difficult to translate So th- I think that's why they choose the third of the trilogy. Mm. Okay, okay,
0: cool mm. yeah, What about the non-translated
2: one? Mm. Well, mm, like Li Zishu mm-hmm. Who is a, also a women writer Born in the 70s So her works like Ye Pusa I, I think a short stories collection, while, yeah, Pusa, while Buddha,
1: while uh, Bodhisattva, Buddhist, yeah. yeah, while Pan uh, okay. Yin or something. Yeah,
2: yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, short story collection is very good, and she has also a novel uh, focused on May Thirteen. Okay. Uh, it's called Gao Pei Nian an era of farewell. It's
1: mm. quite recommended. Oh, it's as... very poetic. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, but I would also even recommend like the fact that we do have sort of uh, newspapers that are now digitized from mm. you know. Our, our history if you go to the National Library of Singapore's website You can easily access all the old newspapers from the early 20th century. You go to NL National Library Board Singapore sort of like website, you get the newspaper. Mm. You go to NUS Library sort of like portal, Mm. you get a lot of books and uh, uh, school annuals. That's
2: important.
1: Uh, Those are you know first-hand sources Mm. that Mm. you can actually access a lot Mm. of this Mm. literature, and they're Mm. available for download for free. Mm.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, So that's actually uh, important. My research site. Yeah. where I usually spend my time there in Singapore so the writers that I mentioned just now were kind of contemporary writers but there are also many writers uh, before them who are who worth um, um, reading as well. Like, I can a- also recommend one whose name is Wei Beihua, who is Li Wen's father. Okay. Yeah, oh, cool. I, I mentioned to you before. He, oh, yeah. They recently also uh, published his collections of stories and poems. His student name is Wei Beihua, and his um, uh, real name is Li Xueming. Okay. So, yeah, cool.
0: recommend as well. Great. All right, thank you very much, uh, Shoying Sin. You just heard from Ying Sin. She's a postdoctoral fellow at the Malaysia Institute, Australian National University, and she's joined by Simon Soon. And we've been talking about Mahua Literature. Share your thoughts with us by tweeting us at BFM Radio, or you can send us an email to nightschool at bfm.my. Uh, don't forget to also download the BFM app, which you can find on the Apple App Store and Google Play. Thanks once again, Shoying Sin and Simon Soon. Thank you. Thank you. thank you. thank you. I'm Hanif Baharudin, and you've been listening to Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station.